Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is December 8th, 2022, and I'm joined again today by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we're going to talk about a piece that you wrote for The Hill this week. Uh, 20 years later, the axis of evil is bigger, bolder, and more evil. That's right. So yeah. remind us, uh, first of all, sort of where the, where the phrase axis of evil comes from. So it came from a 2002 State of the Union address by George W. Bush, and that was just five months after the 9-11 attack. And so in this State of the Union speech, he said uh, he cited three countries which he called the axis of evil, and that was Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. And he said, and I'm quoting now, states like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger. They could provide these arms to terrorists, giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail or attack the United States. And, and I agreed with all that. Uh, but much has changed in the last 20 years. That was 2002. We're in 2022 now. Since it's been 20 years, let's remind um, listeners, especially some of our younger listeners, that while, while Iraq is not considered today— right. A, a problem or a source of terrorism. At least not a major one. No, I that's mean, right. It's, it's, it's still a, right. a problematic state. But this is pre-Iraq war. This is Saddam Hussein. Right, the so Ba'athist Saddam Hussein regime. was there, so he would have been, that's why Iraq was included, right. and then so you, you had Iran. So you had Iran, which was a threat because of because they're uh, directly funding terrorism and all that, right. and then you had Iraq, who was an enemy of the United States, and Saddam Hussein was an enemy of the United States, and they were engaged in both direct terrorism and also funding terrorism too indeed so yeah and then and north korea of course right. and not much has changed in north korea except they're poor and, and hungry <laughs> <laughs> but they've also expanded in their weapons so so a lot has changed and and i would argue including the axis of evil because i would argue that the axis includes more countries now with larger economies bigger militaries and worst of all their expansionist vision so the three countries that that uh, Bush cited, you could argue these were just largely failed states. They yep. were smaller states, poor economies. They could not do, a, they could do some damage through funding terrorism, but they couldn't really do much other damage. So that is, and, and the one thing that hasn't changed is all the Axis powers, um, and many of their lying countries are run, run by strong men, uh, essentially authoritarians who are largely insulated from any kind of democratic overthrow of their regimes. Mm -hmm. So which countries? I'm, I'm gonna, here's my list. I so this is your new updated 20 years later axis list. of evil. Okay. China, Russia, yeah, still keep Iran in there, and North Korea. Uh, and so those, I would argue, are the primary ones. In addition, there's a number of dictator-controlled countries now that are largely aligned with those axes. And you can, you know, you can sort of go through your list of countries on those. But I would include in that uh, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, Syria, Nicaragua, Belarus. Syria would not have been. Syria was at least a, uh, a non-aligned state to yeah. some extent at, at 20 years ago. But Venezuela has gone uh, because of Chavez, Nicaragua, Belarus right there just next to Ukraine and mm -hmm. Russia. So 
you could make the case that those are, and you could even make the case that some other other countries are. But in addition, uh, because with those countries that are aligned, you have some countries that are supposed to be somewhat independent, but haven't really separated themselves. And I would argue that uh, Turkey could be in that. Mm-hmm. They're working with Russia, even though they're not. They don't seem to be necessarily part of that group. Uh, and even India out there is more than willing to buy Russian oil, work with China and other countries. It's the largest democracy, and they have been. They've refused to. Um, sort of separate themselves from Russia for their actions in Ukraine and China. Yeah, I think I think we would say that India is still playing very much sort of a non-aligned role. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you point out this geographic thing, and of course we can't show a map on, on the podcast, but when you look at this, at the continent of Asia, I mean, all of these, most of these countries that you just enlisted form this large geographical landmass. And then, you know, Tagged onto the bottom there is India. So you look at all the countries that surround India and you say, they can hardly go it alone, you know, where it's kind of hard to ask India, you know, to be like, you know, an outpost of the United States, given where they're located. I want to go back, though, and and point out something I think is interesting, that when you were talking about this axis of evil 20 years ago, from today's perspective, it's really noteworthy that neither Russia nor China were included in that list. And I think we need to remind ourselves that 20 years ago— we still had this view of China that they were going to eventually liberalize right. through free trade and through U.S. investment and the idea that economic liberalization and trade liberalization would eventually lead to political liberalization. China had been taking steps in those directions. That's exactly right. We were more and more U.S. companies were beginning to offshore into China. Mm-hmm. Uh, using that as a manufacturing hub and other things, and that was really helping out China yeah. economically. So I think that's that's fascinating. That just shows you how much can change in 20 years. 20 years is not a lot of time. Yeah. But our, our our relationship with China has completely changed in a 20-year period of time. Yeah, and in 2002, we were 10 years away from when the uh, Russia, the Soviet Union essentially broke up. Right. So you had a lot of these countries, Ukraine being one of them, and several of the countries there that had separated. So you were you were you were closer to the breakup of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. than you were well, than we are now. And so it was still kind of an open question whether Russia was going to be a friend or neutral or a small problem or whatever. And just to remind our listeners, a lot of U.S. companies started going there. McDonald's was a big deal oh, yeah. when they decided to open up uh, their first uh, hamburger spots in Moscow. That was a big deal. Mag- business magazines were full of articles about what an economic hotspot Moscow was and a tourism hotspot and, you know— Hotels in Moscow were just as expensive as they are in New York City. I mean, it, yeah, it was a place where tons and tons of American businesses were going to try to invest, uh, to try to make deals and close deals and all that sort of a thing. And the guy who oversaw the collapse of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, even did a pizza, I think it was a Pizza Inn commercial <laughs> that ran here that got a lot of attention. Yeah. And he got some criticism for it. So it, it, it just, again, it, this isn't the main point of, of your piece or of the podcast, but uh, it is fascinating to me how much can change in 20 years. Yes. I mean, here you've got, you know, we're, we're talking here about four of the biggest countries on earth, the U.S., India, China, and Russia. Right. And our relationship with at least two of those three has changed dramatically in in just 20 years or less. Yes. And and so the uh, one of the big changes there, as I mentioned, the three economies in Bush's uh, axis of evil, evil were largely small economies that mm-hmm. really 
they 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 just they were just small, largely failed states. Yeah. Whereas now you've got China as the second largest economy. Russia has uh, Russia has been a long way from being a large economy, but it did have a large military. But at least from an economic standpoint, when you have this block developing there with China in the middle, Russia on the top, and these other countries around, uh, you've got a major economic block that can create its own, uh, essentially, trade system. Sure. No, well, uh, like we were saying with India about they can hardly go it alone. I mean, the normal people for you to trade with are your are your near geographical, you know, the people you share a border with, right? right. So you would expect Russia and China to trade, uh, Russia and India to trade, China and India to trade, some of the smaller countries you were mentioning and all that. And, of course, sort of implicit in the idea of an axis of evil is this idea of cooperation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we look at what's going on right now with, like, the Ukraine war, you have North Korea supplying Russia right. with, with weapons. You have Iran supplying Russia with weapons. Indeed. You have China engaging in agreements to purchase oil and gas from Russia. As well as India. Right, exactly. So there, there is clearly cooperation going on there, and those countries are either directly or indirectly aiding the Russian military effort in trying to conquer Ukraine. Right, and as as you mentioned, I I took a map of Asia, and I just sort of drew a line around this, and this this spans all kinds of time zones because you're going essentially from Turkey all the way over to the Pacific coast, mm-hmm. and down if even if you don't include India, you get down into Iran and so forth. So you've got a a huge section of Asia, which allows them to trade between themselves. And uh, and often and even move things across borders. If we want to say um, we're going to try to stop shipping and other things of that nature, and we're trying to do that to some extent with Russian oil being shipped on the seas, but they can transfer it through pipeline and rail and other things to these other countries. So you have a real economic block that has a lot of power and an awful lot of people and a lot of land. And one more thing: not only is China the second largest economy. But when you take Russia and you take China and some of the other countries, you've got a lot of natural resources Mm -hmm. that the world depends on that are largely, I don't want to say controlled, but where the large majority of them come from China or or some of these other places. Yeah. If if you project down the road that the sort of block that you're describing actually really does become sort of a unified block Mm -hmm. against the West, um, that's very powerful, you know. Now, Russia has a shrinking population and a shrinking economy. Uh, it has but, fewer people today than it did when it attacked right. Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but China has a growing economy and mm-hmm. a growing population. India has a growing economy and a growing population. So, uh, in fact, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, during the during the George W. Bush administration and early in the Obama administration— uh, India became a big foreign policy priority for the U.S. The, mm-hmm. the outreach to India and get, entering into treaties and trade agreements with India was a big deal because you can see that it's in our strategic interest to have a strong, powerful ally in that part of the world. Whether we do or not, I think, is still sort of an open question. Uh, but if you were to find ourselves, you know, 20 more years down the road here to where Russia, India, China, uh, some of these Middle Eastern countries. The stands countries. in there. Yes, all, all of the stands and everything. Right. Tajikistan and so forth. Belarus. Around down there. Yeah. If you were to find that as a relatively unified block against the West, 
that would be a very powerful coalition. It would be very powerful. Very economically powerful and very militarily powerful. Now, here's another difference between 20 years ago and now. Uh, when you looked at Iran, Iraq, and uh, North Korea, these were, uh, other than Iran trying to spread terrorism, it was not trying to necessarily gain more land. Now, when you're looking at China and Russia, you're looking at expansionist states. We weren't sure that, I mean, it's only been recent that it's been really obvious that Russia is trying to expand its territory by invading Ukraine. But China's been moving into the South China Sea, has been building islands in the South China Sea and right. put military bases on those right. things. China is involved in what's called the Belt and Road Initiative, where it's been going around to smaller uh, developing countries and... Uh, meeting with them, entering into contracts where they'll build ports or other things of yeah, that nature. Yeah, we've not talked about Africa, but China has made huge investment in African countries. Indeed. Yeah. And China is meeting, as we talk, with Saudi Arabia right now. And, and to say consider- nothing about the fact that China has gradually enfolded Hong Kong into itself. Indeed. And has every intention of doing the same thing with Taiwan over time. So you've got Russia expanding, grabbing more land. You've got China in the... Let's let's say it's at least in the early stages of attempting to do that. But you can see that both of them, both countries tend to want to be expanding their territorial reach in ways that we didn't have in the first axis of evil. And that is a huge problem because now you're facing not just a country doing some things it shouldn't be doing, but a country that could be creating war or in, engaging in war as Russia is already doing. That's right. And this all happens at a time when especially after the after Russia moving on Crimea and then Ukraine it becomes clear and you're you're even hearing republicans who typically try to be fiscal hawks saying things like we need to increase our spending on defense mm-hmm. already the single largest item in the budget but you could you could see the united states finding ourselves in a situation where we need to increase our defense spending but because our house is not in order, we're not able to do it mm-hmm. just because of the huge debt that we have and the interest on the debt and the budget deficits, the, the fact we don't have our discretionary spending under control, the fact that we don't have our entitlement spending under control, the fact that we've accumulated so much debt that servicing the debt, I think, is is close to, I think, uh, surpassing the defense spending, mm-hmm. especially if interest rates you know stay high. Uh, so we could find ourselves in the U.S. where we're not able to do what we need to do, uh, which is increased defense spending. And we know that the nations of Europe are already starting to backtrack on some of the commitments they made. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany just last week backtracked on the commitment it made to the Trump administration about the share of money that it would right. spend on defense. I think it's supposed to spend 2% or something, and it's sort of scaling that Yeah, back and, they're, and they're, they're backtracking. Now, I think Japan is planning to increase the amount of money they spend on yes. defense for obvious reasons. But, yeah, at some point you have to pay the piper, and it may be that we are forced by this new axis of evil uh, to build more aircraft carriers and to spend more money on defense but we may find it very difficult to do so because our fiscal house is in such disarray and is not in order. And that's not an optimistic scenario. And see, you brought up the next point here, which is not only expanding, but they're expanding their military. So Russia has, has, of course, used a lot of its military assets, but is trying to replenish those. As far as China, China now has the largest um, uh, army in the world, 2 million people, Mm -hmm. 2 million uh, personnel in the army. 
It has the largest Navy in the world. Now, I, our Department of the Navy still thinks we outclass them in, in the kinds of ships we have. We have more aircraft carriers. But China, I think, was just finishing up its third aircraft carrier here recently. Yeah, you'll, you'll typically hear uh, defense analysts saying that the United States still has the largest blue water Navy. And mm-hmm. what they mean is essentially, uh, you know, the capacity to essentially traverse the globe right. when necessary. But as far as, like, total number of ships... I, I, I do think that we're either very close or China has surpassed us. China has surpassed us, yeah, yeah, both in the number and when the Defense Department does it, because they, they calculate the numbers a little bit differently. They still they, they have a fewer number of ships, but they still have China with more ships. But the Navy will say we still have better, higher quality ships um, for the purposes of war than they do. Mm-hmm. So uh, we may still be leading there, but China's on a building spree, and you have to ask the question, if you're satisfied with all the land you have, and China has a lot of land, and you're okay with that, why do you need the world's largest military and the world's largest navy? Yeah, I, th- I think it's well recognized that China intends to dominate its sphere of influence. Whether that extends toward you know threatening the United States directly or mm-hmm. not, I mean, there's no reason to think that it does. On the other hand, you know, the, the, when you have a, a country with an entirely different political system, an entirely different view of human freedom, an entirely different view of individual rights and liberty and things like that, the more influence they gain, the worse off that is for the world. And, you know, the United States, we've been very proud of our role as essentially the defenders of liberty and democracy and as a force for good in the world to spread those things or at least to help make them possible. And you won't be able to do that if you can't keep up with the axis of evil. And, you know, because we are a free market group and we like the aspect of trade, we think trade helps make friends. When you're trading with a country, you tend to want to try to negotiate with them. And work. If you create two separate blocks here, if you see in sort of an axis block creating where they're, they're trading among themselves but not so much with the U.S. and the Western powers, and the Western powers doing the same, then you actually start creating the situation of now we have an us versus them in a lot of ways, right? Because that trade aspect that helps, um, that that can help make friends and overcome certain objections starts going away. It's a really good point. I think it's a really good point to end on that it it, it is an economic threat too because you know if if you have the world dividing into those two blocks like that, those are fewer potential trade partners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are fewer customers for U.S. companies and things like that. So that that is a limit on economic growth and economic power, too. If you just get into a situation where there's there's two large geographical blocks on the planet and they more or less won't trade or interact with each other, that, that's less than an ideal situation. Well, on that optimistic and inspiring note, um, thank you for joining us for this podcast episode. We would invite you to check out our website at ipi.org. And to sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. And we promise that not every podcast episode will be as discouraging as this one. If you have enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? Our podcast is now available on Amazon Music, so you can stream it by listening to your Alexa device. You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.